Welcome to Unexpected Points. I'm your host, Kevin Cole. I have a very special guest today, Ryan Paganetti. He is, or he was, I should say, the assistant linebackers coach for the Eagles for the last few years. He did game management stuff there. He's been with the Eagles for a combined six years. Um, I wanted to talk to Ryan. Not only does he have uh, great insights, you know, on the football side of things, on the coaching side of things, but he has analytics bona fides here with the game management side and of course ivy league guys so we just automatically pencil you into the analytics bucket right yeah of course <laughs> i was gonna yeah. in the nerd category yeah there you go well hey, hey you can get your if you can get your feet in both both realms then at least if at least when the inevitable you never played football sort of thing comes up you don't have to worry you, you don't have to worry about that challenge that many of us yes. nerds have to worry about on the outside i still got a little bit of that to some degree <laughs> Uh, no yeah. Matter what, yeah. Well, different levels, different levels of football, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of stuff here. Um, I want to go through, you know, some of your career progression uh, and then also go through maybe like in a typical season, the, the setup, the, the, the game by game sort of thing, and then adjustments there. So why don't we just start with background for you as far as how you got into coaching and how you got into uh, later in your career, I guess, doing more of the game management stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, I, I was actually a pretty competent running back um, coming out of high school. And I, I went to Dartmouth to be a running back. I was sort of, I guess, trying to mold myself as a Danny Woodhead or whatnot. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, I got there and I, I had a significant hip issue and a significant shoulder issue. And I ended up having to get a labral um, surgery on my hip, a labral surgery on my shoulder. Some other things came up and it basically just like crushed my career. And I had always really been interested in coaching. And, and in particular, I had sort of, I'd played a lot of Madden. Like I just thought, like I really enjoyed that, that stuff. And I had a great relationship. So I was at Dartmouth, but I was from Massachusetts originally. And I had a great relationship with the coaches that I had been with um, in high school. And so I sort of oriented my um, school schedule so that I could like take classes two days a week. And then I would actually commute back to Massachusetts. And I started coaching while I was still in college. Um, and I had a ton of fun with that and like just really sort of developing my skills from that standpoint. And, um, at one point I'm like, yo, I think I want to be a high school coach long-term, you know, like there's less pressure. You can do whatever you want. Like if you want to be Kevin Kelly, Kevin Kelly at Pulaski Academy and just do outrageous stuff, like the media is not questioning you or anything like that. So, um, I didn't really think that, you know, the NFL was a possibility and I was sort of fortunate to get a little bit of a connection and I was able to get an internship with the Cowboys before my senior year in college. And that was like in the scouting department and they didn't really have much analytical stuff going on there. So I kind of helped out with scouting and and analytical stuff and um, just getting my feet into the league and and getting experience. I think that was like a really uh, great opportunity for me. And it like sort of convinced me that like, if there was an opportunity to get into the NFL, like I definitely wanted to do it. Like, this is what I, you know, just, I mean, a lot of my co uh, classmates, I guess at Dartmouth, you know, they were like going through wall street and, and those sorts of routes. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be like cool to like make a lot of money or all that. But, you know, for me, like if I can do something in football, even if it's as a player personnel person, as a coach, as an analytics person, like I was like, I'll do anything you want me to drive somebody to the airport? I'll do that. Like, you want me to fill up water bottles? Sounds good. Like, and so then I was fortunate to, um, after school, I got an internship with the Eagles and that was actually like Chip Kelly's last season. And, um, I, it, it was great for me to like get a lot of experience, not only just in the NFL and get my foot in, but like to be able to witness like multiple different coaching staffs early on in my career 
and to just see like very different approaches, whether it's like personnel or coaching or scheme, like three, four, four, three, and just to be able to see like how people can have just like totally different approaches. And, um, you know, it, from the first few years, I would say for most people, like you're almost like a grad student slash like studying your PhD in football or analytics. Like you're just trying to learn, um, to some degree, just because at, at that level, at the NFL level, like these guys have are experts in their field. I mean, most of these guys have been coaching for 10,000 hours or, um, you know, they've been scouting players for 25, 30 years. And, so um, at least starting out, I was more just like in the background sort of learning and seeing if there was ways I could help out and, and um, sort of just doing whatever I could, to, you know, try to help the Eagles win football games. Well, let me let me jump in for a second here. So you mentioned the 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 internships that you got with the Cowboys. So at that point in time, Garrett had been around forever. Right. So he was the coach That's- there, I assume, at that, that point in time. So, you know, I just anecdotally like talking whether it be on the scouting side or even on the coaching side um you know a lot of it is networking connections you may have you may know someone who's there i mean some of it is kind of kind of like a wide open interview process obviously and it seems like you know ivy league types are probably disproportionately represented versus players right in in in, in the nfl so was was any of that part of what you were looking at is maybe looking at guys who were either former dartmouth coaches who were working somewhere that that you could you could work through or was it more of an open thing when you when you work with the cowboys and the eagles um at the end of the day i was like just trying for any opportunity like i grew up a patriots fan and i was i was like if any of these 32 teams want to give me a shot like i'm happy to do it And so like just reaching out, sending, you know, like my resume and, you know, I I really was offering to work for free because I'm like, look, you know, there's so many people that want these jobs and um, the, just the, the, from the team side, like they can theoretically like suppress wages because they know that they're going to have like a hundred thousand applicants if they post an analyst job or a coaching assistant job or something like that online. And, um, so I sort of understood that there was like a sacrifice to be made early on. And I'm like, look, you don't have to pay me anything. I just want to, you know, an opportunity to prove myself. And uh, I think that was like helpful because at the end of the day, like the, the risk, like, even if these teams didn't really even have like an opportunity available, they're just like, well, like, it's not like it's a significant burden for us to add somebody. And maybe this person, you know, they went to Dartmouth, maybe they have some creative ideas or they can use, do some interesting things that we're not already doing. So I, I, but at the end of the day, I I was like, I'll do whatever for any team. That was sort of my mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you were with the, the Eagles, then you mentioned Chip Kelly was there. Uh, Mm -hmm. You kind of work your way up the ladder. I mean, what is the, what are like the differentiating factors for someone moving their way up the ladder beyond willingness to do anything and everything for no money, which is probably, Um, (laughs) that's like getting your foot in the door. Right. So, yeah. Yes. Um, I kind of looked at it like, all right, well, like I could have gone to grad school and paid money or I could have, you know, pursued some something and paid significant money or I could I, I, I actually did get paid. But it was more just like presenting myself as somebody willing to do it for free. But yeah. um, I think just, um, you know, treating everybody with respect and, you know, um, showing that you're like grateful for the opportunity. Like so when I got to the Eagles, um, it was March right before the draft. And kind of weird timing, like just because um, particularly I was like helping out on the player personnel and a little bit of like analytical side. And um, because you were doing scouting stuff with the Cowboys. Yeah. Yes. And so my mindset was like, 
I'm not going to do anything here that is going to make them want to get rid of me. <laughs> so, and I'm like, I'm going to just, you know, this is, could be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like I know, you know, how lucky I am to get my foot in the door. So early on, um, I actually like got pulled into somebody's office and they're like, so they had me clocking in like hourly. And they're like, do you know that you worked 122 hours last week? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't, I, I didn't even keep track, honestly, but like, um, just like this mindset of just like, I always was like, you know what, if I can't, if I lose some sleep here early on in my career, like, you know, that's, it is what it is, but you know, I don't, I don't want to be sitting there regretting an opportunity that like, I didn't give it my best shot. And, um, I think for me, just sort of beginning to like work my way up was, um, just, you know, developing relationships with coaching staff members or personnel staff members and sort of, um, a lot of times these guys have no idea even like what data they have access to or like what um what somebody that has like a more technical background can do to help them like they might be doing like a they might spend five hours going through an entire season trying to find all these like three by one bunches by the uh giants and um they don't even know that like with their pro football focus data they that i can pull it up for them in like 45 seconds right and, right. and so just like being able to like show different you know staff members that like hey you know there's there's ways that things can be streamlined and, you know, even just like having discussions, like sitting down at lunch or dinner and like hearing, you know, their perspectives of like, Hey, this is why I hate analytics or this is why I hate that. And being able to like, you know, get to the point where you could sort of explain to them like how actually like we are factoring that in, like, cause a lot of times we'd be like, you're not factoring in this or factoring in that. It's like, no, we kind of are. So um, yeah. for me, it was just, you know, I guess, just, I, I would say like relationships was important. And in particular, when, you know, the team decided to make a change and, and move on from Chip Kelly, um, I was fortunate that there was like staff members that were retained and, or people in like front office or other positions. And they had like sort of seen, you know, that I was just willing to help out and do whatever. And um, I think that was like what allowed me to stick around because of realistically, a lot of times when you have like a major change at the top, like most people kind of get swapped out and a lot of, you know, staffs, they just go with like a fresh start. So I was sort of fortunate because of some relationships that I built and, you know, just sort of treated everybody as well as I could that I was able to stick around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think I was reading about, uh, I think it was Robert Sala who was talking about things that he could do when he first started. And it was a lot of that sort of thing. Like he could come in, kind of show people how to, you know, use his skills as a computer folk to come in there and like show people how to how to do things. And maybe that gives you a little bit of less replaceability, maybe than, than some other people, if you can, yes. if you can do that stuff quickly um, and, and efficiently. Yeah, the 2015 season, that was an interesting one. I mean, I'm thinking back now, I remember the rumors were out there that uh, Chip was going to trade for like every draft pick for the next 15 years for Marcus Mariota and, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> and that everything else that ended up going on there. What was it like then being an analyst and like the structure of the Eagles? I assume the Eagles were viewed from the outside as being this completely unique uh, take on the NFL and the way Chip Kelly was doing things. Do you think it was very traditional inside the building there? Is it, it's similar at all to kind of how things have grown in the NFL? Um, I think that, you know, to this day, some of the stuff that Chip was doing was so impressive. And I have, a, I have a ton of respect for him because he really just, he didn't care what anyone else was doing. You know, like if he felt like something was backed by data or made a lot of sense, like he was 
going to pursue that. And like, for an example, um, he, he was having the scouts like video, um, perspective like players like so the the scouts would go around to colleges you know meet with all the players and whatever and talk to them and you know film them whatever and so part of um part of the response he trip had a massive investment in sports science and like he really believed in like okay you know he was like supposedly tracking everyone's sleep and everything else yeah yeah like sleep heart rate variability um you know injury risk prevention hydration um and but that also like came into play with like working out players that were like prospective free agents or um, looking at college players. So this really unique thing that he had guys doing, and I think it was really sharp was he had um, the scouts go around and basically take um, like college players through these like basic movement screens and they would like, like film it. And so um, then they would bring back that film and show it to like the sports science guys. So like if they had, the sports science guys were like very involved in the player selection process from the standpoint of like, they could assess like some kind of dysfunction in the, in the player's body. Like say you couldn't bring the, the player in for like a physical or whatnot, but you had all this film showing like, okay, like there's something going on with their left ankle. There's something going on with their, um, and like basically uh, sort of projecting some level of like risk of like, all right, are there, does this player have certain attributes that, um, are fixable or is there certain aspects of like their biomechanics that are like critical flaws that may show up over the course of their career where they're just like, okay, they had a couple injuries in college and they're just going to continue to get hurt because something is like really off. And I think you saw, like, if you look at football outsiders, like adjusted games lost and things like that, like chips three years in, in Philadelphia, like the, the team was incredibly healthy, like, and they, and it was very surprising too, because the total snaps, that the team was playing was like the most in the league because of the tempo that he was operating at. And I think now you see more and more teams like investing in the sports science aspect of things. And in particular, you see that sort of play out with the, um, the preseason in particular, because most teams have realized like, why are we risking players like playing in a preseason game when it's relatively meaningless? And I think that the, the person that sort of really set, off this new tradition of like barely playing your starters at all or none was when Sean McVay did a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that like all their top players did not even step foot on the field. And then they had a very healthy season. And, you know, like the way the way the NFL is such a copycat league, people saw that and they're like, okay, if if that team like did nothing in the preseason and um, they ended up very healthy, they had a successful year, like we got to do that too. And I think so you saw a lot of teams like sort of, emulating that model um and i think there's always like a little bit of a pushback from like coaches they're like oh well these guys need to be get ready to play or this guy you know this guy needs reps or live reps and i think there'll always be a little bit of a battle there but like the it's sort of trended more towards um you know avoiding injuries at all costs in, in that sense or scaling back you know the amount of practice time you're doing during training camp or you know keeping track of a guy's gps data and being like okay he spiked a lot with a high workload day yesterday let's like back them off and pull them out halfway through practice or give them a day off and I think that you're seeing most teams are like trying to implement something like that at this point but there are some like old school teams that are like no we're gonna have the best we're gonna have the most the toughest training camp of all and like we're gonna relapse and like do up downs or whatever and I think it's just sort of interesting you do see like variations and things like that but there's definitely been like a movement in that direction oh yeah 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 now I mean we've gotten a little Outsiders got a little taste of that um, via hard knocks because 
a few years ago when it was the Browns who were on there, there was this conflict between uh, Hugh Jackson and I guess it was mostly, I'm trying to think of who it was. I, I remember for, uh, Freddie Kitchens was in there, but I don't think he was the he was the main like antagonist here. But it was like, can we get guys to dress at least when we're giving them days off? Because they were giving days off and they got they got shit about giving days off to guys like Miles Garrett, who was very, who was like very young, or um, I think it was Duke Johnson who had a lot of like soft tissue injuries and things like that. And then even in this year's hard knocks in the first episode, they were mentioning monitoring, I guess is what Dak was doing and taking him out, but he didn't want to be taken out on that sort of thing. So it's, it's probably become, you know, a fairly common thing there. How do you, how do you deal with the pushback? I guess that, that, that would be an interesting question there because it's seen, I mean, I remember the the cesspool that is like Twitter when 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 Garrett was getting this day off, people were just making this big to do about it, despite the fact that I think it was going into his second year. So he was he got injured in his as a rookie, and he, he had some he had some you know ankle and soft tissue injuries before that. Like, how do you deal with that within the building, or is the noise not as bad within the building as it is as we're seeing on the outside? I think the noise is less in the building it's it would mostly be coming from like coaching people but the front office right. people love that because like i've i've noticed that the front office people like have very very little weight on preseason snaps and they're just like keep everyone healthy like yeah i don't yeah. want to have to deal with this guy we paid 12 million dollars having like a list frank injury in week two of preseason like let's just let's get them out there week one and like if they're a little bit rusty fine but at least we're not like losing guys in meaningless games um, and I think just from the, t- the top, like, you know, if the owner and the head coach and the general manager are on board with it, like people sort of just respect it. Like you might have gossip and like complaints here and there, but for the most part, if the people at, at the top are on board with something, like you kind of just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, we didn't even have a preseason last season. Right. And yeah. things, things didn't, didn't completely fall apart. Although um, I'm sure. There, there are some complaints can be made. And, you know, I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned about, because I found it really interesting about this, this, you know, the imaging and the data that was being collected on players you mentioned from, from uh, when Chip Kelly was there. What, what I think is hard sometimes from, from an analyst hat here, I know that obviously people have institutional knowledge that can tell them if certain movements will lead to injury, this and that. But then if it's new data that's being collected, and I think it's probably happening with a lot of teams with the tracking data and things like that right now is you can't really model and test it very well necessarily. You're using more of this, you know, maybe logic slash institutional knowledge slash whatever to, to make an assessment on that. I mean, did, I don't know if you know for, from that specifically when you were with the Eagles, but h- how often does that come up where it's like, you can't necessarily make confident predictions um, even though you have this new data, this, this new data, which can be very valuable. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, sort of from the sports science standpoint, I think just sort of relying on like peer reviewed studies and, and um, opportunities where like there, it wasn't just like, it, it almost wasn't new data. It was just more so like basic assessments. And it in just the sense that like, it was sort of like a no stone unturned mentality of you're just like, it's just an additional tool. Like it's not going to be the final tool and everything, but like, okay, look like this person has significant discrepancies in this, um, you know, this testing model. Like, I don't know if you've heard of like the functional movement screen, but that's like a pretty standard protocol now where, you know, you could, you basically perform like something like seven to 10 movements and you get a score. And there's been some pretty significant data supporting, like if you're, if you have a terrible score in the functional movement screen, like your odds of, encountering a significant injury are much higher 
So I, I think when is, it, when is that being collected? Is that on like these team visits? Is that something that everyone's doing at the combine on the, um, on the yeah, I, I think it's not public or. It, yeah, I think it, it sort of depends. Like we would do it at team visits. And um, I think some teams, you know, they'll get the doctors to take a look at the guys at the combine. The, the players are so busy at the combine. Sometimes you don't really have enough time to do things like that. Um, but in particular, like the team visits is, is big when you do like a top 30 visit. Um but it, uh, to give you like another example, like I think there's a little bit of a balance too, where just like sometimes players um, feel like it's a little bit intrusive if you're like gathering so much data. Like um, there's only a negative to it, right? Like and it's well, hard. It's hard to envision. Like if you're a great player, you played well, you're a top prospect. Yeah. Like it, it's like are you how, the the I guess it's like disproportionate risk, right? If you're going to fall based upon this information, right? Yeah. And, and you'll see like some players these days, like aren't getting weighed or like they don't want their height taken or they don't yeah. want to do workouts because yeah. the only thing that can happen is like something bad. But, I, but even just like on a daily basis, when, when I was with the Eagles, we had, you know, we had players doing um, testing for like hydration. So like urine testing and they would do things like they would wake up in the morning and they'd strap this heart, heart rate variability monitor on them. And like in a couple minutes be told, like, here's your heart rate variability. And like, these are, uh, things that there's a lot of like promising data suggesting that like yes this information is very useful but for some of these players are like what am i doing like like I'm, I'm just sitting wearing this thing or like i'm peeing in a cup every day like like i don't want to do this and it's just like if you're do if you're presenting something new to like veteran players it's a little bit different yeah. than like college where like some of those sorts of behaviors are a lot more like standardized and um you can't like i don't know the 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 political like sway that college players have is so much less than in the NFL where you have some like 34 year old veteran who's like, I'm not peeing in a cup. Like, what do we know? Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. like, I think there's always like a balance there in, to some degree, but um, for the most part with the Eagles, there was a lot of players that were like pretty receptive to this stuff. They're like, all right, well, if my hydration test shows that like I'm dehydrated, my chance of a soft tissue injury may be higher at practice. So like I can hydrate more at practice today. And um just little things like that, I think, are just generally useful, even if you don't have like very exact data, like, OK, consume like 18.7 ounces of water and you're good. It's, it's just more like generally speaking, like, all right, you know, we can use some intuition here that, you know, like if you're showing up as dehydrated, like you probably want to drink water and just little things like that, I think were definitely helpful. And um, it was always nice to have players that were receptive, like and I try to tell people like with Tom Brady, for example, like um, his one of like the reasons I think that, you know, his value goes beyond the field is just like the way that he is so obsessive about everything off of the field and that the impact that that has on like his teammates and the people around the uh, organization when they're just like, well, if Tom's going to bed at eight 30 or Tom's taking care of his diet or getting massages or doing everything possible to be better, like who am I to be like some rookie or some second year player and just like go party during the season or go screw around and stuff like that. I think that there's just like a, a positive externality of them sort of um, of seeing like a, a leader of the team who's like totally bought into like fully investing in their health. And I think it sort of like impacts the rest of the team as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. I mean, it probably is happening. Actually, I don't know. This is a little bit more speculation, but it's probably even happening with things like the vaccinations that are going on in the NFL. Yeah. NFL. Now, if you, you can like pitch and get the quarterback in a lot of cases on board, but even another very respected player, whoever it may be, um, bought in first. I mean, is it, can that be like a strategy then if you're trying to get people is to target one person and, 
you know, maybe pitch them a little bit more often than, than trying to get uh, other people on board? Yeah, I, I think just um, to some degree, a lot of it, I think, is like self-driven where you just have right. some yeah. players that just like they just have this mindset that I'm going to do whatever it takes. So we had guys like Darren Sproles or Malcolm Jenkins or even like Nelson Aguilar, for example, that just whatever it took to be better, like they were going to do it. And I think that just the more players like you have that you have like that in the building, um, the better. And I think it, it, it definitely shows up with the vaccines as well, where you just, just um, you know, there is. I mean, the numbers in the last like month or two have like really improved in terms of like the buy-in and things like that. And I think it's more just like people seeing like, okay, like that player who's better than me and he's like a 10 year veteran, he got the vaccine and he's playing good and he's not having any side effects. Like I got to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think just seeing people playing and, and um, uh, even just being like spending all this time in training camp every day with these guys, I think that can definitely like be something to help convince guys and, I mean, I think you do have a lot of teams like now, like 90 plus percent vaccinations. So um, should be interesting to see how that kind of all plays out with the season. Yeah. And all that. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I saw, I think it was the Vikings who had a lot of top players who weren't doing it. So yeah, it can really yeah. work, work back and forth on that. Okay. So let's talk about your transition into, into coaching. So mm-hmm. you mentioned that you were initially like, I'm going to, you know, Kevin Kelly, uh, the, never punt um mm-hmm. or maybe combination of that you know friday night lights maybe also a little bit of that in there yeah. uh so, so that was going to be your your life you moved into you used your nerd credentials to 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 get in through that route how did you make the transition over to coaching so um i'd say uh, i always sort of felt like i didn't want to like exclusively be a coach like i wanted to be like my mindset was like i wanted to be like the first guy who was legitimately a coach and legitimately an analytics guy. Cause I think some of these guys have obviously the, the coaches have embraced analytics, but somebody that is like all in on analytics type type deal. So um, when I was coaching in high school, I think I sort of had like my first taste of like, Hey, you know, I could really do something from a um, analysis perspective that could like translate on the field, like when I'm installing something. So for example, I was, um, I was sort of in charge of like our punt return unit when I was in high school or sorry, when I was coaching this high school team. And um, I have this little pet peeve that I think it's um, borderline insane how frequently teams like muff punts or have situations where punts like bounce off a player's leg because they're like blocking the gunner and and the frequency looks like an absolutely critical game changing play happens. Like I think San Francisco is an example, like when they were playing in the playoffs with like Harbaugh, the guy like muffed two points or something like that in a playoff game. But I just think that people just drastically underestimate the frequency at which um, muffed punts are occurring. And if you don't have a guy that you really feel confident about, like you should probably not return those or even attempt to catch them like much more frequently. If it's windy, if it's rainy, like, you know, maybe you lose a few more yards because the ball bounces, but there's other ways you can handle it. Maybe you have your punt returner, like go block one of the gunners as well to, you know, let the ball go in the end zone and things like that. But um, just sort of like taking the data and like, I was sort of studying our own team in high school. And um, what was interesting was like, we had nobody at the high school level who was remotely competent at catching punts. Like it was like, probably uh, at least a 20% chance on our team that it was going to get muffed. And I'm like, we're not, we're not going to even return these things. So I started thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, um, just the operation time of, you know, long snapping and like the level of talent of high school punters. Like, I feel like we could probably block some of these things. And like, I don't even want to 
risk anyone going near that ball because I don't want to be blamed for us fumbling or muffing or whatever. So what we were doing, um, and this was like, so I'm installing like my punt blocks. And basically we put all 11 guys, we were like our 11 fastest guys out on the field and they just all exclusively just rushed full speed. Like we basically would just honor the fact like, okay, if they split two guys out wide, we'd have to put two out there. But for the most part, we just had no returner and we just sent every single guy selling out and we blocked like seven punts in seven games. And, and I was like, yeah, like, I think I might be onto something here. And I just like felt like that was like my first like foray into like coaching and like having something with like data and like putting it into play. And um, I thought that was like exciting for me. And that was sort of like motivating for the future. Um, and then, so I, I would I'd always follow like the analytics community. And um, in particular, like I mentioned in the Forbes article, like Brian Burke is like, I have so much respect for Brian Burke that like, I just put him about as high up as you possibly could. And like, I talked to Brian a little bit and he helps me out at different times when I had questions and there'd be things that came up in 2019 or 2020 and, um, and it would be some sort of game situation and, and I would be thinking about it. And then I'd realized like after Googling it, that Brian already wrote about it in like 2008. Yeah. Brian Burke was at ESPN. Now he had, yeah, the name change of it, but he had a blog. I think it was advanced. It may have been advanced NFL analytics and they changed it to advanced yeah. football analytics. Um, yeah. Like so that. that's exactly one of those things. Anytime you're, anytime you, you have a question about something, you're like, Oh, I wonder how this affects something. And then you, you start doing some research. You're like, Oh yeah. Brian uh, looked into that question. Yeah. And it, I think what's great about the, his blog in particular is he didn't, he's not like a, data scientist by training or anything like that. He didn't have fantastic data, but it's pretty like simple sort of insight you can do as long as you have an approach of looking at the data, using some intuition, using some, some, some mm -hmm. thinking as far as how things, and maybe not being tied to what people would traditionally do. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think just at the end of the day, um, at least when I was first kind of getting involved in NFL analytics, like it was always important to just have some sense of like being able to make reasonable assumptions and like trying to use some intuition and logic to be like, this doesn't make sense, or this does make sense, or um, let's try to simplify this here because things could get really complicated. I mean, you see even now with like win probability models or expected point models. And like, you'll see some very, very intelligent people come to like very different conclusions. And I think yeah. to some degree that almost like hurts analytics to some degree, uh, just seeing how one thing says that. And I think some coaches get caught up with this and they're like, okay, well, what's the truth because this, this model says this, or this model says that. And I think to, for me, particularly with working with Doug Peterson, like being able to like show him like a couple different models that were like showing something similar or saying like, Hey, here's five models, but four of them said the same thing. Like, you know, I think it was probably like, you can feel pretty good about what you did. Yeah. Um, and I think that was always helpful to kind of just like cross check what you were doing to, so you just didn't have some like single model that was like fairly radical or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so I have a little story from my experience with uh, in 2015 that um, with Chip that I think was kind of I don't think anyone is familiar with this story. It's just kind of an interesting anecdote. But in terms sure. of like getting into coaching. So I had always had this uh, argument and I was trying to do this at the, at the high school level. But this coach is like, you're completely insane. But I had this argument that if you were at the end of the first half and the other team was clearly in field goal range. And they, but they had enough time to, you know, run two, three plays and try to get a touchdown that you would just essentially just hold all the receivers or tackle all the receivers to prevent 
them from attempting to get a touchdown and just take the penalty and force a field goal attempt. And how much time left are we talking about? Is so, like, say, I don't know, eight seconds, 12 okay, seconds. You yeah, could, yeah, yeah. Theoretically, could have done it multiple times yeah. um, at the time. And so, say there's like eight seconds left, and the other team's at the 10 yard line going in. And um, you could, like, all right, they're going to get a field goal at minimum. They're clearly going to try to score a touchdown. So, like, if you sit there and on the snap, you basically grab all the eligible receivers and prevent them from going everywhere, anywhere, or even like tackle them or whatever. Like yeah. they have to kick a field goal. Like that, that's the right. Like, they'll get another play, even if there's zero seconds left, but no one's going to take that. Yeah. And so say you have like the chance. 15 or the 10 or like it, for the most part, unless it's like the one or two yard line teams aren't going to go, they're not going to go for that. Right. And even if they yeah, do yeah. go for that, that's like fairly risky too. But yeah, well, um, you're, you lose the bet. You also lose the benefit going forward in that situation. Cause you're not pinning the other team deep because it's the end of, it's the end of the half. So it's less yeah. valuable to go for it at the, fourth and one at the one at the end of the half than it is at another point during the game but anyway go ahead right so I like sort of brought this up with some co-workers in 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 Philly and they're like all right that's we're not doing that (laughs) like so but sure enough what happened is in week three of that season we're playing I think it was week three we're playing the Jets and um it was something like 12 seconds left from the 17 or something like that I don't the exact number I don't have maybe somebody could look this up but Fitzpatrick threw a touchdown at the end of the first half to Brandon Marshall. I think it was Brandon Marshall. And um, it was the perfect situation that we could have done this strategy of just grabbing all the guys and guaranteeing a field goal. And so um, fortunately, you know, at, once that moment happened, we sort of like brought it up to chip or like, you know, Hey, you should think about this. Like one thing that we did, and I actually worked with like Dave Giuliani. I know you had him on here at some yeah. point. Um, and we're, we sort of like presented that to Chip, like, hey, you know, there's a pretty compelling case here that we could just basically take penalties and you know, guarantee a three point end of half situation for them. Wait, is, is this part of like a weekly review thing or is it? Yeah, so we, we had a little bit like later on in the week, we usually like, you know, early on in the week would kind of be more focused on like helping out with game planning stuff. But yeah. later on in the week, just yeah. sort of reviewing things that happen around the league and sort of like throwing ideas out or just like bringing up something that happened with another team or like they used the timeout here we would not have used the timeout etc things like that okay so we sort of brought that up and he was like very receptive to it he's like let's do this and so he (laughs) they put in like a defense and it was called like 55 holds and it was basically like a man cover two defense and on the snap all the uh the man-to-man guys were basically just going to grab their players and so people didn't realize that we actually did it in 2015 at the end of the uh, second half we were playing at Dallas and we were up by three and Des Bryant had just like been crushing us they were like making a comeback and we just like couldn't cover him like it was mm-hmm. it was like, hopeless and um they had had the ball at like I don't know like the 30 or something like that and um Chip just felt good he's like you know if they just you know attempt a field goal and and we go to overtime like I'm cool with this but like I don't want Des Bryant catching a ball in the end zone or something. And we go home with a loss. And so there was time left for like two plays or whatever. And they called the play and really like, I'm not a hundred percent sure it was the best time to call it, but we did it. And <laughs> well, the, the 30 is like, yeah, I mean, you're, no, it, it giving, really us, you're giving us a valuable yardage there. You're no, it really probably yardage. like, it wasn't the best, but like, anyways, <laughs> it happens. And right. sure enough, like, so Malcolm Jenkins, like basically just tackled J- Jason Witten and like the commentators, like what the hell is going on? Like, <laughs> We had like Byron Maxwell, like didn't even do it. Like we, it was like the most, it was just a strange play. Like, I think it was like Sunday night football or something. Chris Collinsworth's like, uh, 
okay, like that was an interesting move by them. Like, cause no one really knew what was going on. And then they, they yeah. attempted the field goal the next play. They made the field goal. Um, and then we won in overtime. So it was like, oh, it worked because we won. Like hindsight was <laughs> like, but um, but then the next season, um, so Chip went to San Fran and he ran it two times that year. Like he did it against, you should pull up these plays because it was like legendary, but he did it against Carolina and then he did it against San Fran. Uh, he did it against uh, New Orleans and like Sean Payton and Drew Brees were like losing their mind because they like thought it was like illegal, but there was right. nothing. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it was completely legal at the time. And then shortly after that, I don't know if it was in season or after the season, they ended up banning it as like some kind of intentional penalty to just to manipulate clock type situation. But it was sort of funny just like seeing that tr- how that sort of played out. Yeah, um, getting something banned sounds like a bad, a nice badge of honor right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was something like that, that, that had to be banned. Out of it was, I, I thought it was awesome that chip was like cool with doing it and stuff. Like, I don't know yeah. if it's banned in college right now, but like if I was a college team, I would do that uh, even more in college because the kickers are so bad. And yeah, like yeah, you yeah. have a short field goal from one of the hashes, it's like a crapshoot because it's so far <laughs> off to the side. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like my first, you know, like ability to like sort of transfer something onto the field. And I was like super excited about it. Like that was like the, at one point, that was like the peak of my life. I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. But anyway, so I sort of just um uh I basically just presented myself as when Doug took over as like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever to help. And Doug had come from Kansas city where Andy Reed has had this guy, Mike Frazier helping him for a really long time. I think he's like the statistical coordinator or something like that. And so, um, you know, as Doug was sort of like building out his staff, he sort of put me in that role where I was like, sort of like his like kind of like right-hand man for like statistical things. Like if he had like a, like a, a project or like a question or anything like that, like he would sort of ask me for that sort of stuff. And at the same time, like I was like, just, had this mentality of like, I'm going to fill in however I can. So I, I also was like helping out the offensive line and helping out like running backs and linebackers. Like I was just, um, you know, so this is in practice. 2016. This yes. Is so I was, I was sort of like filling in the blanks and like um, to some degree, like I was sort of uh, shaking off like the analytics stigma because like I would literally be holding a bag at practice for like Brandon Brooks and Jason Kelsey to do like a double team block and, like yeah. or whatever, whoever was there at the time. And I'm like, yeah like that's uh I was getting thrown around a little bit like I almost had to go see the athletic trainers a couple of times because it was like not ex- I didn't exactly I'm like probably I hope more. you were monitoring your own hydration levels yeah no I, I that was like sometimes I'd be dreading practice because I'm like oh it's the day that we you know do double teams that's great you know <laughs> I don't have I don't even have cleats on and I'm about to be thrown 30 yards but um I sort of just how the it, things played out um I was helping out Doug during the games in 2016 and like we were going for fourth downs, but like we were like so, so on converting them. We actually were losing a lot of games. So it was like a lot of the fourth downs we were going for in 2016 were sort of obvious ones because we were losing. Um, And we actually even had a few like semi-controversial, like fourth and twos and stuff that we got stuffed on. And like, I was like nervous about it because I'm like, uh, you know, I think coaches are very like, biased on like what has happened frequently like what has happened recently for them so like if they failed on a couple in a row they're like you know screw that I don't want to do that but um I think just you know Doug was always very receptive to like looking at the data and like I would meet with him um you know the day after the game and sort of like show him like 
here was the win probability difference. Here was the expected points difference of, of the decisions that you made. Like here's one maybe we could have done differently, but like, I was always very respectful about it. I'm like, I'm not telling you what to do. Like, I'm just giving you some information, you know, if this is helpful and um, just something to think about. And he was very open to it. I think we had like an amazing owner, Mr. Lurie, who was always very positive with Doug and like encouraging him, like, look, like if, you go for fourth downs and you fail like that's fine like i i trust the data like i believe in this stuff and um i'm always going to support you and i'm not going to sit here and like get mad at you because you went for a fourth down so i think just having that mindset where that sort of like put a little bit less pressure on him and um well anyway so that second year so up going into 2017 we had like some staff changes and there was like an opportunity to basically um you know formally be like working with the linebackers as like a coaching assistant or whatever. And so that's when I sort of like officially became like a coach. Um, and I think it was like really helpful for me because I was, um, I was in all the defensive meetings. Like I continued to like learn a lot in terms of scheme things and to be able to like sit in like, I don't know, 30, 40 hours worth of, you know, schematic meetings a week. Like I could find out like things that, um, we were doing and like, be able to come up with more interesting questions and be able to, you know, uh, find certain things that could more directly impact like game plans because I was like sitting in the meetings and I understood why they were doing something. And I was able to like question something like, all right, well, if we're doing this because of 12 plays, like I can pull up 142 plays of, you know, something similar, we can look at that. Or, you know, if we're doing this because we're trying to, you know, stop the run game, like, why are we trying to stop the run game? If they're running a lot on second and 10, like things like that, that, um, I could sort of show the coaches and like, and give them some more specific and useful data, I think. Yeah. Um, well, real, real, real quick yeah. on that. So I know like your, your framework and your expertise kind of could help you relating to the coaching side of thing. Now being in those rooms and, and seeing things more on the coaching side, but I mean, I know you've done some coaching before, but this is on a, on a different level on a very special on more of a specialized level. Uh, yeah. Also, um, did that change how you thought about not just ideas for how to do analysis, but maybe, you know, how you would think about certain things where before it was more cut and dried. And now, you know, we get into the quote unquote context, everything's context, right? When, whenever it says, yes. it says they, they, you don't want to do something it's like, well, what about this? What about this? Have you thought about this? So did that bring up, did that make change your philosophy a little bit on that? Or did it even, or did, or did it reinforce in any ways some of the things you've been thinking about? I think on some issues, like it definitely um, sort of uh, gave me a new perspective and, and sort of made me re, uh, rethink a few things. Like to give you an example, um, and I'm not sure if any of these models are like capturing this, but um, you know, just spending time with our like special teams coach, uh, he had sort of discussed how, um, just like blindly, like a lot of these like models will say like, all right, if you punt from like the minus 30 yard line, here's like the net average and that might like go into a fourth down model, um, for like, for the punt, but, um, he is minus 30 he, being your, your own, 30 your own 30 yard, yard line. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's like sort of a lot like, okay, like if you choose to punt, like the average net is 43, whatever yeah. from that yeah. yard line. Um, but he had made like a really good point that, you know, if you're punting on fourth and one or fourth and two or fourth and three, like that's a different situation than if you're punting on fourth and long. And the main reason being that the off, uh, that the returning team has to like honor a fake. 
And so what happens is you'll, you'll see teams when it's short, uh, a short yardage fourth down punt, like they'll have more players in the box, like in, in the, the terminologies, a lot of times, like there'll be an eight box or a seven box versus like, if it's like fourth and 10, the, the, the odds of a fake from the minus 30 are so low that you'll see things like a six box where they'll double the gunners. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then because of that, the actual net on the punts is a little bit better on fourth and shorts because like the gunners basically get a more free release and you sort of have to call certain returns that um, respect the chance of a fake a lot more. And so like being able to factor that in a little bit, I'm like, okay, well, like if we're attempting like a fourth and one, fourth and two, fourth and three, maybe the net is like 45 yards on the punt versus if it's fourth and 12, it's, it's, um, you know, 42 yards on the punt. And like, just even being able to factor in little things like that, I think did make a difference and made some of the analysis better. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, sort of I was like reinforced on and um I think just sort of like convinced me even more towards like what I felt was like I was like very big into quarterback sneaks and I felt like you know that was maybe the biggest inefficiency even more than the fourth downs like in the NFL and I like spent like my entire like 2017 offseason like obsessing over it I'm like I need to like figure out a way to get this like across to the coaches and like so I spent a lot of times like meeting with the quarterback coach or the coordinator or the head coach or the offensive line coach, or even the center or the quarterback and like really interacting with like all of their questions and their thoughts and like reasoning for like, okay, why are we not running quarterback sneaks? Like, is there an injury risk? Is there like certain, you know, is it the looks considered not good? Like, is there other reasons like we want to, you know, have a mixed strategy and I attempted to like, you know, use as much data as possible to like answer all their concerns um, and for example, like one good, uh, one typical reason was like, okay, you know, we don't want to injure the quarterback. Well, the reality is, is in something like the last like 700 quarterback sneaks, at least that I had data for it, there had been like two injuries and one was like Mahomes a couple of years ago. Yeah. I was going to say, once well, you one, set up to Mahomes, then all your players. Yeah. And then that absolutely everybody for sure. But it, one was Mahomes, which obviously like, you know, that if there ever was a guy, you never would want a quarterback sneak. Yeah. Like, probably Mahomes because like you know just preserve the preserve his body as much as possible <laughs> but um and then like Tom Savage or something like had like a concussion or something one time but other than that like actual injuries that led to a player coming out of the game were like basically happening once every 350 snaps or something it's like that's like a decent risk reward for like the most efficient play type um and but just being able to interact with certain coaches and they'll be like, OK, the offensive line coach says that, you know, if there's two guys in if there's this front aligns like we can't run a quarterback sneak and then being able to use the PFF data to pull up all the times that in the last, you know, five to 10 years that that front has been uh, presented and a team ran a quarterback sneak anyways. And what was the success rate and like being able to like almost like debate and like, you know, defend if you have like a thesis, be able to like fight it for it. And uh, yeah. I think that was really useful. And and so one thing that it's not really a secret, but one thing that people had sort of caught on to like partway through the um, 2017 season is like we had sort of decided that there were certain like third and fourth down situations that no matter what the defense aligned in, like we were running a quarterback sneak. Like, yeah. And like the data was like pretty supportive of that to just getting the surge and like getting a good snap and, you know, having everyone drive off the ball that you were probably going to convert it anyways. And like, I would like be, my hair would be like falling out watching other teams and it would be like fourth and a half yard and they line up in shotgun and like have like a deep passing play or something like that. I'm like, just, it's like, it's like a foot just jamming in there and just like, you know, like it's, uh, but, uh, 
I think to some degree that thing's closing now too, because now more teams are a lot more teams are actually running a lot of quarterback sneaks. And I think that the rate of sneaks has jumped in the last couple of years, pretty high, even on like the goal line. I think you see a lot of like quarterback uh, rushing touchdowns more than you did in previous years last year. And I think it's teams realizing they're like, well, we have first and second goal on the one yard line. Like if we just jam this thing up here, like worst case scenario, it's like second and goal from the one or, or third and goal from the half yard line. So I think you're less likely to get a hold on a play like that. Yeah. Like a hold. You see like all these teams are trying to get fancy and like run like some kind of dive flip play from the one yard line. Next thing you know, it's second and goal from the six or like, (laughs) like just sort of just managing the risk there. It's like, all right, even like a failed quarterback sneak, you're essentially most of the, you, you like, it's incredibly rare for a sneak to get negative yards. So you're probably gaining like half a yard if it's failed or whatever. Um, but uh, that was like, we had Brady doing it for all these years. Yeah. And like Brady, like a positive effect from, from that. And it kind of proves like athleticism isn't necessarily the most. uh, Yeah. And I, 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 for sure. And just from growing up like a Patriots fan, like I was, you know, I had been biased a little bit from seeing Brady run so many sneaks and like, he's probably, in the bottom few least athletic starting quarterbacks in the NFL, maybe like the least. And for him to be so good at that and successful, it's like, all right, he's not doing it because he's just, he's not succeeding at such a high rate because he's a freak athlete. Like that's, that is completely false. So like, what is going on? How, what is their operation? And we sort of like, I'm not going to say stole, but we sort of like copied a few things that New England was doing to, uh, um, to like, increase the frequency that we were running sneaks and like there would be times where like you know we felt like we had a very very high chance of converting and we sort of were copying like what we thought new england was doing and that was something that worked out good but um did you yeah, have I, data on like ball i mean that's something that's come up not looking at sneaks but looking at these fourth downs specifically that uh, michael lopez who's the, the yeah. head of data analytics in the nfl he's shown with the ball tracking like the exact location and how that may there's like selection bias right so sneaks are not yes. happening on fourth and a full yard or fourth and i guess you could even be a little bit past a yard and probably still be called one yard they're yeah. happening on fourth and in a foot so did did you did you account for that sort of stuff because yes. i'm sure people complained about about that too i'm not complaining yes. but maybe that was part of the no yeah that was that was a big concern and so like one thing at the time like we didn't have access to the ball data um but we were fortunate like in the in the off season we'd have a lot of interns or whether it was me or like uh additional interns we would just grind through you were were just obsessed you were just tracking well at one at one point i had like uh it was thousands of plays that were like short yardage and what we were doing is we were subjectively looking at the tv copies and making an assessment because basically the way that the um i believe the way the uh um their rule keeping like whatever this the way that they're told to classify plays is basically if it is less than two yards like two full yards it's right hard to go okay. yeah yeah, yeah. So it, it could be yeah, like i wasn't sure if it was one and a half or or more well, but, yeah, so it'd yeah. be like it could be like clearly like one and three quarters yards and that would be marked as one right and it could be an, a, two inches and that's marked as one so yeah clearly yeah. that's a different scenario and i think right the largest people, range of any distance is one yeah is in that one yard yeah okay right. absolutely so i think what michael lopez had found were like there's some range where say you know it's if it's a few inches you're looking at like approaching 80 percent plus conversion rate and if it's you know nearly two yards you're looking at closer to like 55 percent. like that's a huge difference yeah yeah and so um i actually had like had very similar numbers from like the subjective data and like i know in like a perfect world you're not using too much subjective data but like we when we were subjectively like looking at these tv copies over like 
maybe like 10,000 short yardage plays, like it did very clearly show up like, okay, as the distance increased, your conversion rates were different. And, you know, um, there, what was sort of interesting to me is like a lot of times with the sneaks that you would have teams, you know, gain two plus yards, like legitimately two plus yards on a quarterback sneak, even though it's like, so there's like a mindset, like, Oh, it's only for like a half yard situation or only for a yard, but like the actual distance games. And that'll be something interesting that if, I think if people use this ball data for like exact gains, like the exact distance gained on a lot of quarterback sneaks often exceeds two yards, sometimes three yards, like yeah, I yeah, yeah. over 50% of them or something were two plus yards, which would make you think like, Hey, teams should be willing to run sneaks and like third and twos or second yeah, and yeah. three, things like that. Like they should be more open to it. And I think you'll probably see that. And I think Buffalo was one team that was, starting to do that more with Josh Allen where he's obviously a big strong guy and they would just like jam it forward on third and two and they're like well we didn't get it but it's fourth and a half yard now so we still have an 80 percent chance of getting this one as well so I thought that was kind of interesting yeah yeah and, and like the ball spotting is not the most precise obviously we've seen in the oh, NFL, it's, so, it's frustrating it's, it's, so there was a few bit. times okay I, I have I have a great I have a great idea that some I surprised this I surprised no team has been called out for doing this how come on these like short yardage situations you don't like teach the offensive line that just like or do they already do this do they like crowd the ball a little bit more than they would normally and then the center does that thing where he picks up the ball and kind of like moves it forward a few inches before snapping oh, it or, all, do, or do all, all teams stay. do that all I'll say is if you watch a few TV copies of the Eagles, like you may have yeah. seen like that happen. <laughs> like, I've always like, if you haven't gotten caught for it or you haven't been asked to not do it, then you're not doing it enough. Right. Like there was not- times, there was times and I'm not kidding you. Like you can pull this up TV copies. I don't even know. Is it possible to get the TV copy on like the, the NFL game film thing? Maybe, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was times we snapped the ball on on fourth and inches or third and inches, and the ball was already a first down. <laughs> it was it was like so if we got stuffed. It was it was the first down. It was like this is ridiculous. But the preciseness of the spotting was a problem for me at times when I was like communicating information to Doug, like on fourth downs. I'd be like, the previous play would end, and I would between like actually looking out on the field and looking yeah. at me like because I had access to the monitor upstairs. Um, I would often like say it's a play towards a sideline and it looks like it's like a full two yards and I might give him some information like, you know, it's probably a uh, go for it situation. And by the time the ball's like thrown back in to the other uh, referee and spotted, yeah, yeah. it's like three yards for no reason. They just like <laughs> yeah, yeah. completely jack up the spot. And I'm like, ah, like, and like, but he dug the head coach really like theoretically would have to quickly make that decision. And like, I don't even it was just sort of weird for me at times. I'm like, ah, actually they spotted it there, but you already decided like, now it's like, I don't know if this is the right decision. Um, yeah. So that was always kind of a, an interesting dynamic. They, I think they, they have to figure out a way to spot the balls more precisely and then have some kind of, I don't know if it's like copying FIFA or whatever, but having some kind of like goal line technology, because there's nothing more annoying than those plays that are like jammed up right in the interior of the goal line and no one has a clue if it's a touchdown or not and then yeah, yeah, yeah. Deferred or whatever was called because they you, have can't, no you can't see the knee right when the knees yeah, most of the time so then you you're just like, going on the original call like whatever the original call is you're never going to have yeah. any evidence to reverse it yeah so if there was any way that they could do i think and obviously those are super high leverage plays um if there was any way they could improve on that that would definitely be helpful i think for sure yeah, yeah. But, um, well, one more thing on sneaks. Now, that I, this is like this is. I'm sure what every audience wants is a good 
half an hour discussion of quarterback sneaks. But how come people don't do the Drew Brees thing more often near the goal line where the play's dead the moment it crosses the plane? He gets down. I never see him get hit. It seems extremely effective. You're saying the reach over the top? Yeah, just reach over the top so, and pull um, it back down. Yeah, I, I like the reach over the top a lot, but I would say, like, you really should only be doing it on, like... It was close, right, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you, well, you should really only be doing it on, like, third and fourth downs because a lot of these, even, like, we would coach our linebackers that, like, if they do that, yeah, go for the ball. Like, go for the... Literally go for the punch. So, like, if you did that on, say, like, a first down or second down, or if you did that out in the open field, like, say it's, like, fourth and inches... Yeah, at the thirty-yard line, and you well, not in the open it. field. I'm only talking about on yeah. The no, field. I get what you're saying though. Yeah, yeah, right. But yeah. but for sure, um, I mean, and and Drew was great at that, and I think part of that too is like they had some kind of mechanism. Like, all right, if there's two guys in four-point stances that are like basically have their head in the dirt, like in those a gaps, like preventing a sneak at all costs, but they're like yeah. selling out. Like one of the ways that teams really slow down the sneaks is you have these guys that are like defensive tackles who are just basically like dive bombing at the knees of the center. And like, right. so there's, there's just like no movement going on there. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, Drew killed it and Drew's not a very big guy. Like you definitely could see more of the, the bigger um, quarterbacks who have the longer arms and whatnot, like they definitely could be doing that more. I think that's an opportunity for sure. Yeah. I, I, I just didn't know how much of it was maybe just like Drew's really good at at sense of when to do it and how to protect himself. Yeah. I think for the most part, when I've seen it, like it, it was usually when you had guys that were like fairly low in those a gaps. Yeah. Cause like, yeah. it like just jam like diving underneath was like almost impossible in those situations. Um, but it I do think this, it seemed like it worked every single time I saw. Yeah. It. And it's similar to like Brady where Brady's sneak conversion rate was just outrageous. Like 97%. Like yeah, Brady, yeah. Brady was only running sneaks against like certain looks to basically guarantee it was like almost guaranteed. It was almost always going to work. Um, but yeah, that's, I think you're onto something there that it definitely is a little bit of an opportunity, especially if you have like a big guy, like I, I, in particular, I, I think new England had like, maybe a record amount of sneaks last year with Cam Newton because that if there ever was a guy that was like borderline impossible to stop on a sneak, like yeah. you could have all 11 players just like right in front of the center. And Cam Newton is just such a large guy that like, he's going to, he's going to get some yards. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. So, so you, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, so you had this like quasi analytics slash coaching role did that change much as you were progressing through did you get more into the the coaching side of things then or was it really kind of like taking that game management because i'm really interested in the game management thing because you mentioned that doug came over from andy reed andy reed famously maybe could use some help on the game on the game management side of things so how did that exact role develop as you did it change as you progressed yeah i mean my first year was more like generally with Doug was more generally classified as like an analyst, but like I was interested in coaching and like, I enjoyed it. And I always did feel like the more that I could be with the coaches and um, the more time I spent with those guys and the better the relationships I could build with those guys, um, my credibility and my ability to make an impact would be better. So once I kind of like formally was like a coach, like, I think that this pushback that like, Oh, he's just like some analytics nerd was like, not very valid when I'm like, I understood the scheme on offense. I understood the scheme on defense. Like I could teach this concept to players and things like that. And I think that that really gave me a lot more credibility that like, if I was saying something, it wasn't just some like Ivy league kid just spitting out some meaningless data. So, um, 
if that makes sense. Like, cause I think yeah, that yeah, happens yeah, where you have these coaches that are very anti-analytics and they're just like, these guys have no clue what they're talking about when in reality, like, I think there's a lot of like great analysts and they do have good things to say and they just get completely forgotten. Well, I mean, I've, I've always thought, I mean, I, I guess Howie's actually done a pretty good job uh, with the Eagles because I think he has so much has the ear of, of the owner that it really, that it really helps there. But I've always thought that even in football, it might be, you need like a Billy Bean sort of guy. Like you need someone who played, who then buys in to then like bring it in and really, mm-hmm. and, and really do it just because of that factor that it's hard to, to get buy-in if, if you're, yeah. if you're purely just a nerd coming in basically. Yeah, I, I think in particular, like if you look at, um, I got to know Andrew Barry a little bit because he was with the yeah. Eagles for one year. And I think Andrew's a great example. Like he was like a good player in the Ivy League. And, um, you know, people, he definitely like understood the football scheme and spent a lot of time. Like he'd call me into his office and ask about certain schemes or ask about, you know, plays that we were running. And like he was very sharp when it came to like football IQ. And also he was incredibly pro analytics. And I think that like, Unfortunately for the rest of the league, like like Cleveland with Andrew Barry is going to be a very good team for a very long time because that uh, he's re- he's just a really impressive guy. And um, in terms of like, you know, a front office guy, like he's just like the total package. And I think that um, maybe to some degree prior to, you know, Andrew Barry being the GM in Cleveland, like they did have smart people and they did have helpful people. But like um, him being in that role, like uh now is like the GM like definitely helps with the buy-in, you know, from coaching staff and from, you know, player personnel selections and things like that, as opposed to in the past, they have some people there that, you know, maybe were a little bit disconnected from like the football side of things. Yeah. And I think it sort of created a situation where there was like hostility between like, you know, a, a scouting person and a coaching person and like analytics people. And now I think they're kind of like all on the same page. And I think that they're definitely going to be like a model that I think you'll see more teams that are like, looking to hire like analytics type of GM people. Like I think they'll be looking at Cleveland in particular and being like, can we emulate what they're doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. It helps to, to not go one in 31 also that it's a, yes. like, a little tension, yeah, a little tension when, when that happens. So, so anyways, I derailed it again. So, so you're moving, you're moving up, you're, you're able to, to, to bridge that, that path. Um, let's talk a little bit of, again about the game management role and really getting, did that mm-hmm. evolve over time? Yeah, uh, to some degree. I mean, I, I was sort of, uh, I guess I, I sort of had like been put in that role in like 2016. And then I sort of just How stayed. unique do you think it was at that point in time, 2016? In the um, NFL? You know, I, some teams are so secretive that you just have no, like I, Ernie Adams just retired and no one still has any idea like what he yeah, did yeah. for the <laughs> yeah. Patriots. But I think it definitely was a low percentage of teams that were yeah. doing that, or maybe they had somebody but they were not really like being utilized. If that makes sense. And they, yeah. they like existed. Um, but in terms of like ha- actually having a coach that was like very receptive to it. And, you know, if it was like a critical down and distant situation, like Doug Peterson wanted to know what I had to say on, on all that. And like, he was going to make his own decision, but he wanted to know what the data was in all those situations. And I think that was fairly unique where other times you might have somebody up there, but they're just sort of, I don't know. They're not really utilized as frequently as you may, maybe would expect, but I think now, like at the time that was fairly rare. And now you have, you know, far more teams that are trying to do something like that just because the NFL is such like a copycat thing. If one team has success and that it becomes like public what they were doing, then all of a sudden everybody wants to like 
they think it's like the secret to winning or whatever. So it becomes like a, co- a common thing. Or at least a box they have to check, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Doing. Yeah, yeah. So during the, the games that you were communicating, so how much of the communication was about it was like, what was your purview? Was it like timeout management sort of stuff? Uh, different calls on fourth down? What, what else in between all that stuff are we not thinking um, about? So like I would spend a good amount of time like trying to help out like the game plans on offense and defense, special teams or whatever um, throughout the week. And, and like, and really it'd be like a week, almost like a week in advance, you know? So like it'd be Monday morning or, you know, whatever, like I would have all this information for the coaches to try to help them. And then, um i'd like bring my materials with me into the game and like if something came up that was like holding true from like the data that i'd had going into the game and it sort of was playing out and like um happening during the game like okay like you know the giants are giving up 11 yards per play on play actions or whatever and then it's in the game we've called five play actions and we have like 112 yards like i might bring that up and and, and sort of just like mention it but i wasn't like going to tell the head coach like hey you know call 383 porky or anything i'm not gonna like tell him to do that like a play call standpoint there um so really like um fourth downs uh like timeout utilization uh i would help out a little we had another guy that was like kind of a rules expert and he was sort of like studying the plays for like challenge situations and i was sort of helping out with like okay like is the magnitude of the challenge worth it like okay uh they gained three yards on on second and seven like why are we like we don't have to challenge it or like they gained 32 yards on third down like I think and and it's the third quarter like I think we want to challenge this type thing and um um the other thing too is like accepting and declining penalties because there is like a ton of like really obscure like options that get presented like okay it's you know uh first and 20 or second and 12 from like what yard line or it's it's uh you're at your own 10, the other team's at their own 10 yard line and there's a penalty on the offense. Like, do we accept or decline the penalty? Cause it's a half, half the distance of the goal situation. And like sort of giving like Doug some like tangible data from that standpoint of like um, which of the two options would be better there. And then um, really just uh, because he was like an offensive coach and he was always like, let's score points, let's score touchdowns, whatever. Um, I was definitely trying to help him out with like, managing the clock at the end of halves um or being like hey you know we're up by this amount like you know this really kind of would be classified as more of like a four minute situation if possible um or it's the end of the first half and it's like all right we're on the plus 30 yard line and there's two minutes left like we don't necessarily need to be in a hurry because you know if we take our time these next couple plays like we're pretty much going to have the last possession of the half and you know we're going to end the half you know with three or seven points and they're going to have close to zero or if we like go and take a shot from the 30 yard line with, with uh, two minutes left in the half and we score a touchdown, like they're getting a full two minutes to try to match us there. So like sort of just um, helping out with like tempo at the end of halves was something that I was sort of uh, involved with a little bit too. Well, well, okay. I, then the half stuff I find very interesting because um, it's really hard because yes. there's like a couple of plays that can happen that dramatically change the whole dynamic. Um and often, I don't know, it's been my intuition that teams like don't use their timeouts enough or early enough sometimes because then maybe you can kind of open up what you can do and you don't want to like take them into the half and then have to end up kick, kicking a field goal if you don't want to. But at the same time, you know, very easily you can, it's a, it's, it's a small amount of time that can make it a, a makeable 
feel good, allow the other team to get right. the field goal range on the way back. So how do you think, I mean, is there like a macro philosophy that you've found as far as how you would look at it versus how teams are doing it? Or does it really just depend on a play-by-play, down-by-down, factoring everything in uh, one play to the next, what you're going to do? Um, I think just from a big picture standpoint, uh, I was uh, particularly as somebody that was like coaching with the defense and everything. Like I don't, I'm not going to say a bias, but like I was always very aware of like, are we being too aggressive with the timeouts to the point yeah. where the other team could have a meaningful possession? And I really was like looking at it, like who are we playing against? Like, how do they operate at the end of the half? Like if they get the ball back with 30 seconds, are they kneeling it out? Are they trying to do something? Are we going up against Pat Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers? Because I really don't want to leave them any time, like if possible. So for me, um, I sort of felt like to some, at sometimes teams are maybe a little bit uh, rushing a little bit too early. Like, this like there's like this whole like perspective around like oh it's a two minute warning we have to like rush and really like if you look at teams like new england or like how brady sort of operates like they were kind of taking their time like down towards until around like a minute like and just yeah. simply running plays at work and and uh and not worrying about like like scoring as quickly as possible just you know managing the clock there um yeah. and i've sort of found that like somewhere around one minute is where in a perfect world, like say it's the end of the first half, like ideally we're hoarding our timeout. So we have three there. And if you're on offense, like somewhere around a minute is where you would like start using your timeouts on offense. Mm-hmm. And that way, um, but some teams are doing it, like calling a timeout at like 150 or whatever, 147. And all of a sudden they call a couple timeouts, they throw some incompletions and they're punting at 120 to the other team. And like that, the other team has a minute 20 left and has plenty of time for like a possession and so many I mean, you you can see just like that final two minutes of the first half must be near like the highest scoring period of the game just because all the two minute drives and everything like that. And um, I I was always like, you know, if we're punting, like hopefully, you know, this team has something like under 30 seconds and, you know, doesn't have all their timeouts, Um, but it would get fairly complicated, like very complicated at times because it would be like, all right, we're, it's like first and uh, 10 from the minus, you know, 20 yard or the, your own 20 yard line. And um, it would be like, all right, if we gain this amount of yards, we want to be on the ball, hurry up. If we gain this amount of yards, we want to huddle. If we have a sack, we want to huddle and not call timeout. If we have that, like there at times I would be like trying to present like three or four different scenarios. Um, so uh-huh. it would get fairly complicated. Um, but uh it, I mean, at times it, it worked out pretty good, I guess. But uh, for the most part, like I, I do think to some degree, like if I was managing uh, the two minute situations at the end of halves, like I would lean more towards um, doing whatever I can to make sure that my team had the last meaningful possession mm-hmm. and um, and just being like, OK, you know what? If in a worst case scenario, we're attempting a field goal, best case scenario, we're scoring a touchdown. But I don't want to be in a situation where the other team is scoring a touchdown or even attempting a field goal. Does that make sense? No, no, that, that definitely makes sense. You know what? Bring this discussion reminds me of a situation now um, that that you know the decision got a lot of shit basically for the fact that I'm going back to the playoffs here. You may you may know what I'm going to be talking about here, but there was 
Um, I guess it's the 2018 season, but I think this game was against the New Orleans Saints in 2019. It's officially 2019 in the playoffs. The, there was a big question mark as to maybe you can. I don't know if you remember. I I, I didn't bring this up to you in advance to prep sort of this play, but there was a play that was snuck in where the the it was intercepted ball to uh, Alshon Jeffrey snuck in before the two minute warning. There was a lot of like, why get this play out before the two minute warning? Being that it looks like it was on the twenty seven yard yeah. line for New we were Orleans. Down six, I think. Uh, two time one time out left, I believe. Um, and then I'm looking at this. So sorry, I don't know if you had nightmares about this for a while, um, but. <laughs> to bring bringing this up but is there anything that people were missing thinking about this or were you kind of of the mindset hey maybe we should have taken the 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 two minute warning um i'm not going to question the coach because i think that he called a a good play and the guy was open and he had his reasons like a drop it was a drop that went i mean it was it was like about as brutal as a drop from a guy that is like incredibly reliable the ball was thrown very well like um in terms of like play design and selection like um I think that the coach felt that um, getting off one more play that the other team was a little bit like on their heels and that yeah. they could have a successful play there. Um, at the time I, I, I was like sharing, I'm like, you know, we probably could take this to two minute warning. Yeah. And, you know, he made a decision that like, he felt like that was at, at the time, you know, like that they had a good play. They thought they were going to get an easy completion and, you know, move the ball, whatever it was like seven more yards or something. And he was right. I mean, like the, the it was wide open, and yeah. and um, and then just the unluckiest thing happened. Um, but I think like it was, that, it was second and ten. It looks like on that one also. So you needed some yards. Like you could. Okay. Just, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and uh, I think he just uh, at the end of the day, like that. That's a good example of just like you know, it wasn't. You know, Doug's a great coach and like probably the most pro analytics coach that the NFL has ever had. Mm-hmm. And, um, at the time, like, you know, I was sharing information, but that didn't mean that like he was going to absolutely do everything that I said, like, that wasn't really my role. My role was to just sort of like share information to like help complement his decision-making. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it just, the way it played out was like, just very unfortunate, but, yeah. um, but I'll to like give you another example of just sort of like how, uh, sometimes things you know, played out really well for us was like when we were in the Super Bowl and prior to the Philly special, like I was sort of emphasizing them like, hey, you know, we don't want to waste the time out here um, to call this play. There was like 30 seconds left in the first half or whatever. Cause like I was always like, hey, you know, if we go for this at the the one or two yard line and we don't get it, but we have three timeouts, like they're gonna have to, you know, do something or we could get the ball back around like the 40 or 50 and you know kick a field goal or something at the end of the half maybe. And, and, um, but like, because there was like a little bit of, you know, discussion and and Doug wanted to like, think about it. And there was like players complaining about a pass interference, the previous play, like we ended up like calling a play and then not really having enough time to call to, to like, we probably could have ran the play, but Doug didn't feel good about it. So he called timeout and Nick Foles comes over and they bring, discuss the Philly special thing. And then like, sure enough, like it worked out pretty well. And so like, I think it was like sort of an example of just like, you know, sometimes these coaches have a good feel of like, maybe, you know, we line up in a certain formation and they realize like, oh, okay, like the nickels there and the safety's there. Like, this isn't, this isn't the coverage that we want to run this play against. Like I'm going to use a timeout. And then um, I think that definitely uh, factors in a lot of times. And um, 
again, I don't want it to sound like I like question Doug on that, on the saints thing. Like yeah, it, it, at the end of the day, like the probability that a, like a receiver making that's making like $10 million a year drops like a wide open pass with like no contesting, like has to be less than like, you know, like 3%. So like it didn't work out at the time and everything, but I think um, in general, like it's, it's definitely fun to like look back and like, look at all these obscure situations that occur at the end of halves and just like how things can maybe play differently. I do think a lot of times teams are just like way too uh, conservative about not using their timeouts and they're on offense and all of a sudden they they're rushing and they have two time, one or two timeouts left and they're like taking them into the half and they're not even able to kick a field goal or something goes wrong or that. And I think like definitely teams kind of mangle some of these situations and it's like almost like cringeworthy bad at times. Um, so I think for the most part with the Eagles, we kind of avoided like catastrophic timeout mistakes, but I think you, even on a weekly basis, I mean, I think you still see different things happen that like pretty clearly could be classified as like a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this comes to a broader thing here too. Um, especially when you have so many coaches who are now play callers, like our head coaches just doing too much. Are they doing too much? Um, they have too much like in game in the moment processing i mean think about it. if someone's like think about these yes. two minute things right you're like should i use a timeout you know what play should we be running you know everything else that's going into it it's like the, what's the score you know what, what all the different permutations for what can happen going forward is there just too much that the head coach is responsible for yeah i think that the um for sure with the guys that are play callers it makes it really yeah. complicated and it was like uh, a convenient situation for me just because um doug was as like a new head coach, he, he was like receptive to like doing things different. He wasn't like stuck in his old ways of like, this is how we're going to do things. So like for the most part, he sort of like delegated a lot of like timeout and fourth down and, you know, two point conversion and penalty, like responsibilities to like, for me to like share that information at that time or like leading up to this, that situation. So a lot of times it'd be like, like as the previous play was going on or like, as we're breaking the huddle after he's already called the previous play, I'm like sharing information of like, mm-hmm. okay, if this outcome occurs in the play, this is what we probably want to do. If this outcome occurs, if this outcome occurs and um, sort of just like setting it up so that he doesn't need to sit there and like waste 10 seconds pondering what to do next or anything, particularly at these end of half situations where like every second could be really valuable. Um, and even then, like one thing we tried to emphasize with the fourth downs is like, if we were going to decide to go for it or not, like Doug was going to decide that fairly quickly, as opposed to these teams that waste like 17 seconds deciding, and then they they're late breaking the huddle and then they waste the timeout. And it's like, you almost canceled out your, the value of going for the fourth down because you blew a timeout. Um, so I think we had a pretty good process in place where, um, it definitely helped that like in that Super Bowl season, we were converting a lot of the fourth downs. And I think that gave him a lot of confidence to just keep doing it. And like, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't going to slow down too much. So um, that definitely was helpful. And uh, really just, you know, like we would talk about situations that came up around the league. So like I was, I think he was confident that I was prepared and that, and I knew that at the end of the day, like he was going to do what he thought was best for the team, but he wanted to hear what I had to say. And I think it was like a great relationship and um, it, it allowed for us to have success for sure. What, 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 what can, when you're trying to like translate the level of confidence that you have in what's going on, yeah. um, 
like, like you can't just say, you know what? I don't really know what we should do here. Or maybe you can't, maybe you can't say that. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's okay to say that. But like, sometimes there, it is that, right? Sometimes it's, it's like, do you have a coin yeah. available? You're like, maybe that's, that's how you're going to figure it out. So how do you translate that through? Cause you don't want to come off as overconfident, right? And give the coach the wrong impression of what's going on. But at the same time, if you're hedging a lot, maybe no one's going to listen to what you have to say. Yeah. I, I would always try to, you know, frame things like, um, if it was sort of getting into like a close call situation, I would sort of, and I think Doug was, was cool with me, like giving my judgment on like, based on the factors that were going on in the game and like, Hey, this is probably a field goal, but you know, it's not the end of the world. If we go for it, like it's, it's sort of, and then I'll, one thing with the fourth downs that I like that you're talking him out of going for it a lot, a lot of the times there's like the analytics yeah. guys like, Hey Doug, we don't have to go for it. Yeah. This, well, I know this I mentioned this, this, you, I mentioned this to you before we uh, the other day or whatever, but like Doug wanted to go for the fourth and six at the end of the game at the Super Bowl, and I had to convince him. I'm like, Doug, we're not like for the please, please, please do not go for this. This would be the most catastrophic mistake of your entire career. We're gonna fail, and then it's we're gonna be up by five with Tom Brady just marching down the field with plenty of time, and yeah. they won't even let me back in Philly. I'm gonna be like Walter White in Breaking Bad, and I'm gonna be in witness protection in a cabin in New Hampshire because they're going to burn the city down. And like, that's like, what was that? That was one of the few times I'm like, Doug, please. <laughs> like, I'm begging. I, think, I think everyone has that image burned in of like Scott Norwood wide, right? Like missing that field goal at the end right. of the game. I mean, I think that also factored in to the Shanahan decision um, with, with the Eagles against, against the Patriots is like, I don't think you want to kick that field goal, even though it was like, yeah. it's kind of a gimme, like anything under 50 yards is almost a gimme nowadays. But yeah, I think it's hard to say we're going to kick that field goal sometimes because right. it's like really out of your hands at that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's uh, yeah, it, it was, it, that was, that was one of the, uh, I tried to like, I think I had like a pretty good composure and I tried to avoid like getting overly stressed on situations. And like, I sort of believed in like the data that we had and all that, but that was one of the few times that, you know, like I'm in the Super Bowl and there's 103 million people watching yeah, and yeah. nearly like, like, and I don't blame Doug. I mean, he had basically that like game plan he had probably should go in the hall of fame for like how legendary it was. It's going up against like the best coach in NFL history he scores 41 points. He's running trick plays on fourth downs. Like yeah, that yeah. was just a, with a backup quarterback, like backup tackle. Like it was, just legendary and like realistically he probably had some trick play cooked up that would have worked anyways but like from a data perspective like if we actually had gone for that it would have probably been a very bad decision <laughs> like hey guys i want you to also think about not just this podcast but other pff podcasts that are available we have the two for one drafts podcast with austin gale and mike renner we have the chris collinsworth podcast and of course the pff forecast with eric eager and george Jahuri for different gambling and also fantasy-related stuff with Ian Harditz Ian Hardit's in the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. Uh, the fantasy football season's here, everyone. For just $9.99, you can get access to our draft guide, player rankings, including my own, cheat sheets, everything else that you need right now, $9.99 at pff.com. Uh, before we get into the next segment, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Fantrax. Fantrax, free fantasy football league manager, is the most customizable, easy to use, and feature rich platform in the entire industry. You can put player salary and contract options, bonuses of different types that you don't normally have, auto generate player salaries for your league. If you're com coming from another site, no problem. Fantrax can import any of your current leagues completely free. 
Set up a free account right now with promo code PFF at Fantrax.com slash PFF and get a chance to win a trip to a regular season game this year for you and your entire league, plus $6,000. That is promo code PFF at Fantrax.com slash PFF. Pacquiao uh, versus Uguayas this weekend and DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is offering 101 odds on a punch being landed at any point during the fight. That sounds pretty good. Uh, that's right. Bet $1 on either fighter, and if a punch lands during the fight, you will cash $100 in free credits. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free credits when you bet on either fighter to win and a punch is landed during the fight. Place your bet and watch the fist fly this weekend. That's PFF. Promo code PFF. Turn $1 into $100 in free credits. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. We also mentioned, maybe we can talk a little bit more about um, the story stuff, because you also mentioned as part of the Forbes article, and I'm going to talk about this whole go for two up eight thing, because it became a thing. And I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but... You, you, so you, you tell the story about how you, you, you mentioned it once and then you ended up doing it later on. I think when you ended up doing it, I think it may have been the first time that a team had done it yeah. for I don't even know how long. It, it didn't get a lot of hype because it was a Sunday early game or something like that. Yeah, we, lo- and then, we ended up losing the game, so it, kind of, it got a little bit. And the analytics people picked up on it. But Well, uh, the Giants did it on Monday night, not too long thereafter. And that's when it was like yeah. all, over, all over the place. Right. But anyway, t- t- so, so tell, tell maybe the story of when you were first – mentioning it because it's it's one of these situations where it's a little opaque the concept but it's like such a huge advantage that it seems weird that no one would have would have done it right. earlier so so, so to maybe um, talk about that so i i think in that like 2017 off season like i had met with doug we talked about it a lot like in terms of you know uh really trying to like ramp up the two-point conversions and like trying to pretty much follow like analytics on all those situations and yeah. Um, he was all on board and part of the problem was, is like, he hadn't necessarily shared it with like everyone on the staff that we were going to like, try to do like minus eight, minus four, minus 11. Like we were planning on going for what a lot of minus four. Cause people are not doing minus. We, we, oh, we hold on. We went for minus four last year, look it up. And Doug okay. got absolutely crucified because we failed. And like yeah. the local media, like, pretty much had pitchforks like he's the worst coach in football <laughs> history it's like look he won the super bowl doing all this stuff and now he yeah. does it one time and it really didn't make that much of a difference in the game at all and yeah. he got crushed but so we did it with five minutes left in the third quarter against i think the giants this last yeah. year we did yeah. not get it and it with that amount of time remaining it was kind of like a borderline situation and i right. wish it came up with like at the at the start of the fourth or something like that where it was a little bit more clear of like a win yeah um but but anyway, so, so the that, philosophy on that being like, it's not necessarily much better to be up by um, three. Than, I mean, to be, to be down by three than to be down by 
for, right? That's yeah, and, and it, I think definitely you, you have this sense where like teams are like losing by three and they're like playing for a field goal to some degree at the end of the game and like right, having right. The, it's like so you're playing to like go to overtime to maybe to have like a 50 percent chance of win as opposed to like if you're down by six you're down by four things like that like you're playing for a touchdown at the end which is really more optimal yeah i mean there was times like i was we'd be in situations up by three and i'm like we should almost go for like pretty much all these situations rather than go up by six like against if we're yeah, playing yeah. like an elite quarterback i'm like i don't want to be up by six against them like i want them to be playing for a field goal so we might as well be even extra aggressive or say it's like i don't know like fourth and eight from like the 20 yard line or something and we just sit there and say you know what if we're if we're up by three versus up by six here like it's like we just don't want Pat Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or somebody like that playing for a touchdown at the end of the game. So if there's any way we can ice the game with, you know, going for it or at the very least, you know, have them in a situation where they're almost like hamstringing themselves, like going for a field goal. I think there's definitely like a, an inefficiency there. Um, well, wait, 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 kids, this is a question that I've thought about, especially when in terms of the going for it uh, down, for, going for two down four is that, like part of, so you're looking, it's a data informed decision, right? So part yeah. of the data is saying the t- you as the team that would be down three after kicking the field goal are going to be too conservative if you get the ball back again, maybe accepting the field goal rather than pushing yourself to go for the touchdown, which then only leads to overtime. So it's not as valuable, but if you know that you're not that team or you think that you can be more aggressive than what all those other teams were in the past, does that throw off the data in a way yeah. that maybe it's not worth it? No, it's way? definitely, it's definitely a complicated issue. Um, and yeah. I was always trying to advocate for like, all right, look, we're losing by three. Please, please do not play for a field goal. Like, let's play yeah. like we're like down by six. Like, let's try to score and win because we don't want to go to overtime. Um, but it was hard because it, it, between the players, like the coaches, like it's it just that is such something that's like not typical for them. Like, and it's just the way that they think about it. It's like, oh, we'll attempt at a field goal. We'll be fine. We'll be down three. And well, first of all, like half the time, the field goals that you're attempting are like 45, 50 yards. Like, they're really people like think that field goals like go in hundred percent of the time if you attempt them sometimes it's just yeah, like, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of probabilities that are not great there. Um, I think, yeah, really getting your team of the mindset, like in an optimal world, if you just got your team to the mindset of like, we're attempting to get a touchdown here, that would help out a ton. And that, I mean, that happens like with the end of the game situations, like you score a touchdown and you're down one, like, well, if you like went for two, and there's two minutes left and you got it, then the other team is incentivized to go for a touch or to get in field goal range to kick a field goal to win as opposed to, and they're going to use all four downs as opposed to like, if you are down, uh, you're down by one at the end of the game and you kick an extra point, then the other team is incentivized to sort of, they're not going to go for fourth downs if they're at their own like 20, 30, 40 yard line, if the game is tied, you know what I mean? So, and then they're they're a lot more, they're they're a little bit more disincentivized to be like really aggressive to get in field goal range to win. Um, And I think that that's like beneficial for sure. So, cause I know like the analytics community is like, Hey, if you score a touchdown with around two minutes left to be down one, like you really should not go for two. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's weird that that ends up happening sometimes more often. Well, I I guess we can go back to the discussion, which I derailed again, but like some, there are some coaches who will not want to go for two 
down eight, but then they'll say, well, I'll, maybe I'll go for two at the very end of the game when, right. when, <laughs> when I'm down one, and, and which doesn't quite make any sense. But anyway, so, so you said, Doug, let me, let me set, set the frame again since I, since I blew it up. So, 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 so Doug knew about it, but maybe the other guys didn't quite know what was going on, on on the staff when you were discussing these things. Right. Yeah. So we had kind of spent time with it. I, I mean, I'd sort of show them the data. Like I print out the art 538 did like a great article about it. I don't know if you ever saw right, that. Yeah. Yeah. Benjamin Morris, I believe. Yeah. I literally uh, print out the article and like walk him through it. And I'm like, you know, yeah. this makes a lot of sense. You know, this is, this matches up with this win probability model that we have, you know, um, obviously at the end of the day, like if you choose to, you know, kick in these situations, it's not the end of the world, but you know, this is an opportunity that we possibly could gain an advantage. And he was like, let's do it. Like, sounds yeah. good. <laughs> So the situation came up in Kansas city and I like brought it up on the headset when we were beginning this drive and like a couple of the offensive coaches were just like freaking out. They're like, you're reading your chart wrong. Like that's completely wrong. Like, what are you talking about? And yeah, it was guys that like been coaching for a long time. And I'm like, I didn't, need, it was sort of an awkward situation. Cause I was like trying to be respectful to them. And I'm like, uh, like, this is what he Doug wanted to do. So I'm just trying to, you know, share the information with him. And, um, ultimately I, I think these people were like sort of drowning me out they're like no we definitely got to kick an extra point here and then so after the game like the next day we talked and i'm like you know i'm trying my best to like you know give you the information that i think you want to hear and like i i, I know we kind of prepare for this situation but like these other coaches clearly like weren't on board with that um and i don't really know what to do if that happens again like if i tell you about a fourth down and then they're all saying no like i i just I'm just going to give you the, the data information and let you like make your best decision, but I don't really know how to handle this. And so he sort of just like sat down with some of the other coaches and he's like, look, like I wanted to go for two there. Um, like I've prepared for the situation. Me and Ryan talked about it. Like, like just, just let him do his thing. You know, like I, I'm going to make the decision at the end of the day, but just like you guys have your jobs, you're a position coach, you're a coordinator, but like he has his job. This is his responsibility in the game. And just like, I believe in what he's sharing with me. And we've prepared for it. So just like, if you guys can just respect that, that would be good. And from that moment on, like, it was really helpful because, um, you know, it was like, I'd speak on the headset and rather than be like a debate or anything, it was more just like sharing the information than Doug kind of like digest it and think about it. And, or he could ask questions like, wait, is that that situation or that? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's the one that we talked about down four or whatever. And um, I think that was really good for just like showing like confidence in me and like, um, it helped me like respect him so much more because like he was basically like standing up for me because I think the direction that things could have gone at that moment could have been like fairly downhill with like analytical buy-in if yeah, I just yeah. feel like got drowned out in that case. So that was good. Wait, so when you're, when you're showing them, when you're pitching them on this, like I remember when I, I had written something about it and I tried to do this very crude, like, okay, if you score, then you have this probability. And if you don't, just, just to give an example of like the most likely scenario in which this ends up benefiting you as a team, does, did someone like Doug need something like that? Or could you just put something in front of him with a model with some numbers and he's like, go for it. Yeah, great. Let's do it. So sort of thing. I think he was, um, you know, as like an offensive coach, he was always like very receptive to it. <laughs> like and he was like, sometimes like he didn't necessarily worry about the details of it. Um, and he yeah. was like, sounds good to me. Like more yeah. points. Cool. Like I get to call more plays. All right. That's fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll say I've dealt with other coaches that like, they wanted every detail of everything that you were doing, every assumption, because they wanted right. to find out where you were screwed up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like, even a situation like that, there are, 
a hundred different ways that it can play out right. even it's not as simple as they don't score you score two touchdowns yeah. uh, like there are all these other scenarios that end up happening where it could be where yeah it could be that it could it could hurt you basically in, in, in a different in a different scenario right yeah no i mean I, I just i would sort of try to i think you can also like overwhelm coaches by just like being overly complicated because like right. obviously for even explaining that situation like it could be just something that with somebody that doesn't have a, a background in this stuff like it could just be too much and they're like all right I don't know what the hell is going on. Like, I'm just going to do what every other coach in NFL history has done. And I'm going to kick right. a few or I'm going to kick an extra point here. So I think just trying to like be uh, efficient and, you know, like straightforward and simple with the explanations as much as possible was helpful. And yeah. if there were more questions to like, sort of, uh, um, I guess like walk through, you know, how those questions came up and like, where, what are some answers for them? I also think from my perspective that um, like having TV copy examples, of things that came up in games was always like really helpful so that like the coaches could see like, all right, this team did this, like, this is how maybe we could do this situation differently. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is this situation and like, this is how things played out from that moment. Um, and I think just being able to see exactly how a team did something rather than just like some text written printout of like, Hey, do this, 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 I think just seeing like keep seeing actual film, like matching up to it was like really helpful for like buy-in purposes. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned here how the the media, right? So like the the NFL media generally is is insane. Philly, I assume, is like next level um, as far as yeah. some of the reactions there. So how it sounds like Doug was pretty good about just blocking blocking it out and in, in what he was doing. But how much of an effect did you think that that had on? these like bringing up these ideas, right. That are going to, they're, they're going to at least be written about. Right. And yes. it's kind of like with the Alshon Jeffrey thing. Like, I mean, the problem was he dropped the pass, right. The problem wasn't necessarily that, but then when these things happen, it gets attributed back to the, to the, the fault of the first thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that um, it was so valuable. And I mentioned this earlier that the owner was so receptive and the yeah. owner had very clearly communicated to Doug, like, I believe in this stuff. I believe if you do this stuff, like, yes, you're going to get roasted if things don't work, but I right. am confident that, you know, like if we keep doing this stuff, it's going to work. And to have that reassurance that like you from the person that is writing your paycheck, that like you're doing a good job, I think was really important for uh, us to be able to do that. Um, and um, I think that at the end of the day, like having success even in like small samples of plays was incredibly valuable for our team to be able to, you know, do that and have to, and, you know, win games and to kind of push away some of the, the, the critics. Um, so like the 2017 season, for example, like we had like a disproportionate amount of like fourth and inches plays and we converted every single one of them. And like, so like when people would talk about our fourth down conversion rate, it was like juiced up by the fact that there was a bunch of plays that are going to convert 80 plus percent of the time anyways. And so like, but that benefited Doug because like, Oh, Doug's goes for a lot of fourth downs and he's, he's 17 of 26 or whatever it was. And if we had had like a lot of fourth and threes or fourth and twos that, you know, may, may have from an analytics perspective, been go for it situations. And we went for them and failed. Like, I think that, the critics would be much stronger. And also I think that he would be a little bit more hesitant to continue to do it. And that sort of actually played out this last year. Like we planned on being like pretty much the most aggressive team in NFL history this last year. But the reality was, is that our pass offense was not good. 
like yeah, as the season played out, it was, yeah. it was, it was very like whatever metrics you want to look at it. It was realistically clearly below average. And um, a lot of these like fourth and three plus situations are pretty clearly like past situations. And we had some that we went for and we didn't convert them. And that was like a case where, you know, the coach had to kind of factor in like realistically, you know what, like the identity of this team, like I have to sort of manage field position a little bit more than in the past, because, you know, realistically, you know, an average situation might say go for this fourth and three from the plus 45, but you know, I don't feel great about it or, and, and that was tough for me at times because like, um, I guess this last season was we sort of went against like analytics on fourth downs more frequently than any other year, which is fine. But like, it was, um, it was just different for me, but I, I think it was like a smart decision from Doug because he sort of embraced the fact and like was aware of the fact that the pass offense had like dropped off. And realistically, you know, if we had a 50% chance of converting through an average team, like maybe we had a 45% chance because we just, we were struggling um, and so I think, uh, that's like a good example of just like, you know, having a coach that sort of has to like use their, their instincts and their, um, you know, judgment and feel for how the team is doing to sort of make the best decision for the team at the time. And, um, I think that, you know, I, I, I would have loved to be, you know, working for a, uh, offense that was like top three in the NFL every single year, like a Mahomes thing or Drew Brees or Brady or whatever, because I think so many more of those like fourth and medium situations that you could, you could, you know, be going for, you probably convert better than average. And then it convinces the coach to go for those. And um, it's sort of like a circular effect there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's, it, yeah. I feel like Kansas city in particular, you just wish that they were, they were kind of like always going, for, they, they could probably yeah. almost do though. They'll always go for it sort of thing here. Okay. So closing out here, maybe just one, one more thing. So now looking out into, into the future. So you came into the Eagles organization, like I said, we had Chip Kelly, which was kind of like moving a little bit light years ahead in certain aspects and other aspects it's evolved into it. How do you see things playing out with, with teams and this kind of analytics coaching relationship going forward is the way you think you were doing it in Philly kind of like the, the right, the right way to do it, to have someone who has a dual role role like yourself, or is, is there ability to bring in even more people, which maybe people wouldn't want, you know, like a, a horde of nerds all right. getting involved in the game management stuff. How, how do you see that developing? Um, I think to some degree, like having one person um, or just having like a consistent message for the head coach or for coordinators. I think that's important because I think sometimes things can get muddied up if you have like seven different analysts that have different conclusions and things like that. Um, so I think that definitely, you know, um, if you look at some of the teams that have had success with this stuff, like it's sort of, I mean, there's definitely like relationships in the building, but at the end of the day, like there's sort of like one person that's sort of tasked with like a role, like Daniel Stern or Ernie Adams or Mike Frazier, whoever, like different teams, like George and John and, and with the Colts. Um, and like, like having, uh, definitely having people, I think that, you know, just have a great relationship with the head coach is really important. And if the relationship isn't great, like I know of a, at least one team or like the, uh, like there was like an analyst and, and uh, they were helping out during the games and, you know, they just didn't have a good relationship with the head coach. And it just was like a train wreck because like they right. just, they weren't on the same page. And I think to some degree, like um, it was beneficial for me to like be classified as a coach and just sort of like be known that like, all right, if the, if the head coach doesn't succeed, like, you know, like my job's at risk as well, because like 
like I have skin in the game here as opposed to a lot of these teams, like they're just taking like a front office staff member and like plugging them up there. And I think sometimes there can be like a little bit of animosity or division thinking like, well, they'll just, they're not responsible for the, like if we do go for this or go for that, like they're not the one that has to go meet with the media or they're not the one that like, like they're not being held accountable for their, for their communication and their choices, as opposed to like, I felt like it was kind of nice that I sort of had like skin in the game that like, if things don't work out, it's not great. That being said, I definitely would, you know, be looking to, you know, really invest as much as possible in guys that are people on that have skills that could add to your team. Like using the next gen GPS uh, stuff is like awesome. I think some of the stuff that ESPN has been doing with like run block win rate, uh, like pass block win rate. Uh, I think some of that stuff is awesome. Like some of the stuff with, uh, sort of a classification of coverages and like heat maps and things. I think it's really useful. And I think you'll see more and more like stuff getting uh, factored into game planning. Like for us, for example, like we looked at the, um, the like GPS tracking of like moving, moving at the snap. And part of this was like motivated because ESPN had done something about it using the GPS data where like, yes, like teams that had players moving at the snap, like there was, some interesting challenges that are presented to uh, defenses and like, how can we factor that in more? And um, I think you're, you'll see more and more where like teams are like quickly looking like, all right, what are the best concepts against like cover three seam or what's the best concepts against cover four and being able to use the data and have like plays classified through that, or, um, you know, having this front or this uh, coverage, like here's a, here's a blocking scheme or here's a run concept that, you know, maybe we're not running that we could consider against that. And, um, I definitely think that, you know, there's still a lot of like busy work being done in the NFL that could be like replicated or just uh, replaced by people that have skills to just run queries or um, even just use things like pro football focus where you guys give us so much like useful data. And I I don't know if you have a relationship with every team or every college team, but like if you don't use pro football focus at this point, like you're insane. (laughs) Like the amount of time that it seems like I was using that stuff every single day. Um, and that's not just like, like some stupid plug, like them just, yeah. I, and at, at some points I was like, there was things I would like ask like Mike Parker or different people. And like, mm-hmm. it would later like end up on the site. And I'm like, wait, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Cause like, I thought it was like valuable. And now like every team <laughs> in the league has this information. Like I got to like keep some of these things as like a secret or something. But I, I think that, um, you know, just, uh, definitely, uh, just relationships with like staff members is really important. Like and even just individual coaches, like, is it a special teams coordinator, an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, even if you have like one person that's like not receptive, it, it's like really tough, like, because yeah. just if they don't want anything to do with numbers and it, it sort of creates like a, a strange situation. Um, and uh, I, I think you're going to continue to see this stuff increasing. I think for like fourth downs and two point conversions, like, um, you will probably see teams go like more similar to what we were doing in Philly, like running more two point conversions, but like we were kind of maxed out in terms of like how frequently we're going for it. Like you're not going to start like going for two, like, like down three for no reason, like weird stuff. And like, like we kind of were just like, like reaching a peak there. And I think for some of the fourth downs, like some teams, I think this last year went for some fourth downs that were like borderline clearly too aggressive. And um, I think, as teams like come up with fourth down models, it's uh, maybe the most interesting problem right now is like trying to make some kind of like error adjustment for expected points or win probability, because it's like, all right, how far back is your like win probability model factoring in or how far back is your expected points model going? 
and like how are you dealing with the, the the game changing or certain variables that like change the dynamic like one thing that wasn't really talked about too often publicly that made a big difference was um you know the kickoff moving the touchback moving to the 25 yard line because all of a sudden when you're making a decision of like touchdown versus field goal, the average starting field position went from something like the 21 after a touchdown or, or field goal to the 25. And that's like an expected points difference. And that actually makes you like lean more towards going for touchdowns because like the ratio between touchdowns and field goals was changing there. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause you're going to make the field goal more often. So you'd be kicking off more often, I guess. Right. Well, so- well, no. So like, so basically think if it, in the past, we might have used something like a touchdown on like a decision-making model was worth 6.6 points yeah. because the touchdown is worth whatever seven. And then um, the oh, expected right, right, right. of the first okay, and yeah, 10 from yeah. the minus from the 21 is 0.4. So like the touchdown changes the game state by 6.6 in your favor. And a field goal would change the game state by 2.6 in your favor because of that same dynamic. But if the ball is now at the 25 and if offenses are getting better and you're using a different expected points model, all of a sudden a touchdown – uh, the first and 10 from the minus 25 is worth 0.8 to the other team. Yeah. Yeah. Expected points versus 0.4 in the past. Like that's a, all of a sudden you're looking at 6.2 expected points versus 2.2 expected points. Right. So then, right. So, so proportionally like or relatively it goes up. Yes, the touchdown yes. value, the touchdown goes up. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so I think, and I think you'll see from that standpoint, like more teams going for fourth and twos and fourth and threes because of that dynamic, but we'll see how I guess it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all moving forward and you know, Thanks to you and thanks to the Eagles. I don't, and thanks I don't know. To winning that, <laughs> thanks to winning that Super Bowl. And uh, thanks to uh, convincing them not to go for it there at four on fourth and six. So that was, that was, that was helpful. Well, Ryan, this has been excellent. Excellent. I know that you're going to be doing more kind of like behind the scenes stuff here, but I'm, you know, hoping to see you and, and Doug back on the sidelines again uh, next season. Um I guess, like I said, you're going to be kind of doing behind the scenes and more, not too much stuff to plug, but everyone should check out the Forbes article that we talked about called uh, how, do you, how the NFL uses analytics according to the lead analyst of a Super Bowl champion, which features a lot of quotes and analysis uh, from Ryan there. And uh, you also mentioned before the show, you might be getting on Twitter. So welcome to the, to the cesspool there. And I'll make sure to, to send your handle out to everyone once you yeah, are. Yeah, I might join for about 15 minutes and delete it. So we'll, we'll see. But uh... <laughs> Um, I, I, unfortunately I, I, so I, I had a Twitter in high school with the yeah. Ryan Pagnetti username yeah. and it was like using like a high school email that I no longer have access to. And like the only tweet I ever sent was like, I asked Shaq how much you could bench and like, it just sits there forever. And I, I'd reach out for t- to Twitter and they're like, yeah, you're not allowed to touch this. Like it's, it's associated with this email. And I'm like, all right, thanks guys. Like, so I'm gonna have to come up with a different username. Well, of all the possible things you could have tweeted out uh, at that at that age at that time, uh, yeah, not 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 too bad, not too bad. Uh, well, once again, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this, and only a few more weeks till the NFL season, uh, and I'll be talking to everyone next week. Thanks. Thank you. 